future, the world has survived. Romance has not. Right, so we'll say a dinner, complete sexual encounter, optional episode in the morning, right? I gotta run this past my own lawyer. Pleasure is strictly business. But it will be possible to have the perfect mate. A Cherry 2000. Looks great. Thanks. Thoughtful. Desirable. She'll never run out on him. Just short out. I'm sorry, kid. Total internal meltdown. Now you got her basic memory right here. Vocal patterns, verbal, whatever. Basic voice. Don't look so glum. Your chassis is out for the count, all right? You got the chip. You go in, you pick yourself out a new model. You slide it in the slot. You got yourself your girl bag in a brand new frame. Give me a call if you find a cherry. Cherry 2000. Look, my friend, you're going to be a very old man, round in the middle and bone dry before you find one of those in these parts. That's a chance I'll just have to take. Then, the adventure begins. Why don't you hire a tracker to go into Zone 7? Oh, we got a policy against trackers in these parts. Nobody goes into Zone 7. They got one of the original warehouses down there. Girls stacked on the shelves like pies. I'm looking for someone to go into Zone 7. I'm E. Johnson. You're not gonna find anybody better than me, mister. I'm not a machine. Do you know where they keep these babies? We call it the graveyard. It is the worst place in the zone. Well, maybe I can get in there and find this thing, but I need somebody riding shotgun in order to make it out in one piece. to chase those birds till they drop. If you think it's tough to meet the right people now, wait till you go looking for a Cherry 2000. This spoiler-filled podcast is recorded live, unscripted, and intended for those over 18. Now prepare your ears for the audio stimulation they've been waiting for all day as we step into the spoiler And here we are on another sci-fi January episode of The Spoiler Room, the last one of the month because it's the last week of the month. And as you may have guessed, we had this trend of you're covering sci-fi films that take place in 2017 and tonight's is no different and to talk to me about cherry 2000 is a group of great spoiler room crew members first off the diva of the spoiler room is back so glad to have her in the room tonight to talk about this one (laughs) it is dawn hello dawn hello gentlemen Hope you are doing well thank you for joining us and next to dawn the bfd himself the one and only Glenn Bittner. Hello, Glenn. Hello. And next to Glenn, we have Scotty D in the his house tonight. Hello, Scotty D. Hi. I, I needed something to add to uh, my uh, whiskey tonight, so I decided that I needed to go get a Pepsi. <laughs> have a little Pepsi with your whiskey is always good. A, a Pepsi. Okay. Yes. Pepsi. <laughs> A Pepsi. Did you did you send your love bot to go get the Pepsi, or did you have to go get it yourself? I have no love bot. <laughs> <laughs> you and you know a- what? Some of us can't go across the wasteland to get a love bot either. Some of us just have to sit in our homes and be miserable. 
Yeah. Yeah. The wasteland. <laughs> the wasteland's tr- so, tough this time of year. So. Yes, Don. So, so Scott, you said you watched the. Um, you said you watched it with the commentary. I was looking on Wiki, and apparently the bots are called gynoids. They don't say that in the movie. I don't know. They didn't say no. that on the thing, but okay. Yeah, yeah apparently like, they refer to them multiple a times in Wiki. Or a human-like mm-hmm. robot. What is? Uh, okay. Oh, okay. I so, thought it was kind of creepy. <laughs> that is kind of creepy. Well, there's lots of, well, I mean, we can get into that in the show, but there's like lots of symbolism of like, like if you look at the art oh! direction in this movie, there's lots of, there's lots in the art direction itself. There's lots of erotic and feminine symbolism. Uh, think like Georgia O'Keeffe type feminine symbolism in like oh. the art direction here. You'll see like hotel things where you're like, well, that light. That lampshade is awfully vaginal. Yeah, you know, stuff like that, you know. <laughs> Lots of little touches like that that they acknowledge, yeah, that was a conscious or, thing. Or the or the door to the glue glue club. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. We'll get into that just a little bit. For those of you who uh don't know about Cherry 2000, yes, it is the third of the sci-fi films we're covering this month, set in the future of 2017 in this story though when a successful businessman sam treadwell finds that his animatronic wife cherry model 2000 has shorted out he hires sexy renegade tracky e johnson i'm reading off imdb just want to defend myself now uh to find her exact duplicate but as their journey to replace his perfect mate leads them into the treacherous and lawless region of the zone treadwell learns the hard way that the perfect woman is made not of computer chips and diodes but of real flesh and blood Mm. yeah that's a great that's a great way to to stretch out the uh, tagline to two paragraphs there uh, <laughs> IMDb writer. <laughs> yeah, it's not even by, you know, anyone involved with it. It's just someone who decided, "Oh yeah, we'll just write this," you know. Mm-hmm. So, Cherry 2000, yes, a man basically journeys across the wasteland of 2017 to find his love box. <laughs> and uh this film oh is is actually completely different from the other two films in a way uh that we covered that were set in 2017 uh down to its opening which is like this james bond sensual opening thing don this film starts up what what what's going on what what's running through your head when you would you first see this film? Well, you know, at, because at first you don't, at first, hmm. until you're kind of getting into it, you don't un- know that it's a love bot. You're thinking, oh, hey, so sexy trophy wife is sitting at home making herself lovely for 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 her man after his hard day of work. Yeah. And then there's some weird wordplay. <laughs> but I, I didn't quite. I I got lost on. It it felt almost like it was routine, and I think it was meant to feel like it was supposed to be programmed. I'm not yeah. sure. I believe that's what they were going for. Maybe <laughs> I'm not sure, but I, it was odd. It was some odd dialogue. It was overly scripted. It was just like. Wow, is this a you know? It's almost like a daily routine because he brought her flowers, and she tosses old flowers out of the vase and puts new flowers in. Yeah, vase. And um, and when he, 
not to jump ahead too much, but when he goes back and listens, it's always the same dialogue over and over again. Like that's the only dialogue they ever had. Yeah. So you, you get the impression when he comes home that this is, this is the normal programmed routine for his cherry 2000. Glenn, what about you? Did you feel like this was a regular programmed routine that he had for his perfect woman? Pretty much. It's kind of how it came across. I mean, she, you know, I mean, supposed to have a personality, as it were. But yeah, I, I still still think it's there's not a lot of variance in her program. She she had a rather creepy and unnerving personality. Actually, I was I was waiting for her to go psycho because no one should be that jolly for hubby coming home. Scott, what about you? This opening where we're introduced to where we're introduced to Cherry Two Thousand and uh, the dialogue and such, and is his little routine? Did you get that that was supposed to be programmed? You don't get it un- at first. It seems kind of like um, the old uh, nuclear family, even though it's just you know a couple, uh, right. because there is a routine going on. It's a v- very obvious routine, and there's. This whole motif in the film where it's very 80s, of course, lots of really outlandish, garish fashion and stuff, but there's also a regressive feel kind of towards 50s. And there was a lot of 50s nostalgia going on in the 80s, too, Mm -hmm. uh, at the time. So there's all this regressive feel towards the 50s, not just because of the nostalgia, but also because society is recycling a lot of the old ideas, old themes, and kind of putting it into this consumerist thing. And so knowing what little we know, we're like, okay, this is kind of a bizarre world where we got 80s ideals, uh, 50s values, and yet a little bit of future place. So we don't really know what's going on until like the soap suds start really uh, <laughs> making their appearance. And that's when we find out, you know, the truth about Cherry. Yes, the, tr- the truth about Cherry. Oh man, <laughs> man! It just—it's just an odd open. This film is completely odd altogether. But yeah, especially this opening. It's—it's just—I know you're not supposed to know, but even when you first watch it, I think you kind of suspect something's up with her because she doesn't. I don't think we see her drink or actually eat, do we? She she actually puts the drinks to the side, doesn't she? She, I think she just puts them up to her lip, the, and I don't actually don't remember seeing her drink. And later on, when she holds the sandwich, she kind of just admires the sandwich instead of eating it. Right. Uh, so, 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 so I don't. I, I think you're right there. Yeah, I, I mean, there, there's little hints. I think that something odd is is with her, and so then, yeah, when we get the when we get the water, and she shorts out. He takes he takes her to the garage to get fixed. Oh. They almost died during making that scene. Which scene? Uh, the, uh, the, the, the the scene where they're making out in the soap suds. How did? And, huh? and they and and they and uh, she shorts out. They almost died. Uh, I I was listening to I I watched this movie twice. Once with the, just the standard, and once with a commentary track. The director's describing it. He says, "Yeah, the special effects people. I'm rusty on science. Okay, so you got. So if anybody has a better, like, head for it, Mm -hmm. you know, be my guest to interject. But um, they, uh, 
they used carbon dioxide to make the bubbles. Oh. And the right and the and the, the two uh, actors are right down there. Uh, uh, David Andrews and Pamela Gidley are right down there on the ground. Uh, and he, the ca- director is there right there with the camera, and they're feeling like lightheaded and stuff, and they're noticing like that there's something going on. They're getting carbon dioxide poisoning. Oh, they're getting too much carbon dioxide. And you know, by, and finally, the director, realizing there's something going on, says, "Cut!" and he passes out. And by that time. I guess Pamela Gidley had already been passed out for a couple seconds, and when they cleared everything, she actually had like little uh, marks on her and stuff because oh, they, geez. yeah. So they 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 were so close. There was such an abundance of carbon dioxide because, guys, this is like a whole room full of carbon dioxide <laughs> of bubbles that they made with carbon dioxide in like an enclosed space. Sets are hot. I don't know what could have been factors in this. You know, just the closeness of it and. They almost got carbon dioxide poisoning, and they almost died making that scene. That's that's crazy. Well, there were a lot of bubbles in that scene. It was a lot of bubbles. It was like you know, it was like you know, it was like it was like Lawrence Welk's wet dream. It was a lot of bubbles. <laughs> Tiny bubbles, only a little bit. Carbon dioxide poisoning. <laughs> yeah, so so we get her. We she she short circuits in that, and they take her to the garage to get fixed. And, I mean, first off, our Sam Treadwell guy, played by David Andrews, uh, this guy, uh, I don't know about him. He runs a recycling plant because recycling's huge now. Uh, you know, it, it, it was odd with this one with the opening. Not only do we start off kind of odd with this, just we're just introduced to this couple, basically, and, and things go awry and she short circuit, but... In the other two films set in 2017, we got a little expedition, exposition that set up the world. And Glenn, here we got no world set up, did we? The, the, no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what kind of. Do you get any impression at all that this is even supposed to be a post apocalyptic world at first? I mean, I know it's, you know, resources are strapped, but. Do you get any impression until he finally heads out to the zone? You, you know, what what'd you think of this world building they did, especially compared to the other two? Um, <clears throat> there, there isn't any. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, for the most part, I mean, I, I guess it's just that, you know, you've got the, I don't know, they kind of hint that uh, something has changed because of the fact, like, you know, the whole, they don't make them like, you know, what's her face anymore, like the Cherry 2000, you know, it's like mm-hmm. a lost art, stuff like that. So there's obviously been a something that has set set something back a bit, you know? Right. The technology was there, but something yeah, happened. Yeah, now something that... has happened that, you know, also this technology is not as readily available as it once was. Right. Um, but it's like, you know, they still have, you know, their little, you know, the the big city still has its comforts and all that stuff <laughs> well kind of comforts though uh they made dating a little more complicated didn't they don oh my god <laughs> you know as far as the world goes that that kind of beginning scene i got the feeling that there was this um 
postmodern 1950s, you know, when you, mm -hmm. when you see the old cartoons, the world of the future, that's the kind of imagery there was, that was there. And then you get into these, the glue glue club. <laughs> yes, and glue -glue you get club. the impression that the entire society based on the interactions of Treadwell with his um, co-workers and then what happens with his social interactions at this glue glue club, uh, you, you get the impression that the entire world is revolves around sex. Yes. Yes. I mean, you definitely get that impression, but more so they, I mean, they not only sex, but it's rather male dominated society kind of, or no, would you say? To a point, mm -hmm. the the it it definitely seems that the world caters to male fantasies, especially because of the when you factor in the sex bots. Right. But um, as far as the interactions in the club goes, it definitely seems like uh, the women have <laughs> are not victims. No. <laughs> no. 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 <laughs> We have lawyers, folks. They, they see whatever. We his coworkers are our heroes. Sam, his coworkers decide to take him out because he's sad because his perfect woman short circuited. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, I uh, get a dollar for. <laughs> man, for every time that happened, I tell you. Uh, so they take him to this glue glue club, which we mentioned. The entrance looks like a vagina, which Scott. It makes sense now that you mm -hmm. you mentioned that with the. Uh, was that from the behind the scene, the the commentary you said, Skip? Well, they just, they just keep pointing it out, and the moderator yeah. keeps pointing it out. The moderator who on this commentary who happened to be from Film Freak Central. Yeah, uh -huh. I didn't feel bad about that, considering <laughs> that my whole uh, big thing where I started, where my podcasting empire started with Film Geek Central. Yes. Uh, <laughs> watch, listen to us instead. Anyway, but um, the yeah, they just kept the moderator kept pointing it out. He says, "Okay, you don't have to point out every time the director." <laughs> <laughs> but yes, you're right. Okay, um, but you know what? This is um, you know, you were talking about the world there. Yeah. Again, this was made. Um, it was released in here in the United States in 1988. Mm -hmm. It was filmed in 1985. Uh, so uh, this was, and I was, I gotta thank you guys for this one. When I heard you guys were doing Cherry 2000, I was like, oh, cool, oh, cool. I haven't seen that movie since I was like 13 years old. And at 13, I could not grasp like what this film was talking about. I just thought, well, oh, that's a freaking weird movie okay um this is a really brilliant uh satire on the 80s <laughs> this is really good um and look at what they've got there has been what's going on in the world there has well what was going on in the 80s uh japan was really taking over as far as technology and everything and a lot of the american jobs started going overseas and Reaganomics, this great experiment, worked for a small number of people, and the rest of the people it kind of left behind. There's been an industrial collapse. Mm -hmm. We don't make anything anymore. That's why they have all these signs that say recycle, 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 because the only way they can actually keep things working is to take old things and repurpose them. 
Uh, and then you get to the Glue Glue Club, and what was big? What's a big holdover from the 70s and into the 80s? Oh, the singles bar scene. All these people who are just trying to hook up and trying to have sex because there's all these fucking yuppies who used to be hippies, and then they sold out and realized, oh my god, I've totally sold out all my ideas. Well, I can still have sex. And so there's there, and so you have all these yuppies and everything. And what does sex become? What does uh, hookups become? They all become legal transactions, and the whole society becomes a consumerist thing. If you look, everybody in this movie, especially in the city, is is uh, operating on the assumption of what they can get from anybody else. And if humans can't do the job, well, we'll give you sex bots. Sure. I mean, it's, there's a lot of stuff here. I mean, it's really, it was really an interesting uh, way to do it. And then you have like, so you have like this over materialistic thing, like the 80s. You have this uh, loss of industrialization, like the 80s. And then you have this sex obsessed thing, like the 80s. I don't know. I'm guessing it was just because they were going for a PG-13 rating that they didn't like decide to like make a big uh, parody of like all the like the coke that was running through the 80s as well. But I mean, <laughs> no, seriously, because that's like something that also, if you think of 80s stereotypes, mm -hmm. especially in more high society situations, that's an 80s stereotype as well. Uh, there was a there's a really a lot of stuff going on here, and it was done in a way. That was kind of different. It was kind of different than most science fiction films were doing it. I, I apparently Har Harlan Ellison is a huge fan of this movie. <laughs> so and so like when he when he likes a movie and he doesn't accuse you of ripping him off, that says something. So they were <laughs> they were they were doing something uh, a lot different in this science fiction film about the what if society, positing what world what life would be like in the uh, in the future. Wow. See, you got a lot more out of it than I did. Uh, no, <laughs> I didn't of, well, because I, I think it was because my approach to this film, I was expecting something, yeah, sure, campy, but uh, not necessarily so extremely satire, you know, at all. I mean, I was expecting more along the lines of, say, you know, your uh, adventures in the Forbidden Zone and, mm. and, and that type of sci-fi versus a complete comedy sci-fi which i if i know the comedy i'm sure is there but i'm not sure it was all executed well uh, <laughs> the director has hot and cold feelings about this he didn't like it for years because it wasn't his script and then um he kind of got to like it this director has one feature film other than this to his credit which is miracle mile right uh, i haven't seen that movie everybody i know who has seen it like raves about it. Yeah, it's supposed to be really good. So. And he did this movie when Miracle Mile fell through because Miracle Mile was supposed to happen with Nicolas Cage and wound up having happening with Anthony Edwards. He did this movie and he says it actually set prevented Miracle Mile from being made for a couple years. <laughs> so he had actually had some like rough feelings about this movie initially and it wasn't his script, but he's, sure. he looks back on it now. He says, no, you know, some things didn't work. Some things did. I tried to, it was a neat script. I tried to have something. Uh, the original director was supposed to be, uh, well, it was in 
development for a while with lots of different people, lots of different stars, Jodie Foster, Ellen Barkin. But eventually, the, their, their director was supposed to be Irvin Kershner. Oh, jeez. Uh, yeah, and, uh, and, and then it, instead it went to this quirky guy. So I can only imagine, I think that with somebody like Kershner, it would have been a lot more straightforward. Mm-hmm. And with somebody as quirky as the guy who did Miracle Mile and these little quirky student films and TV projects, it became this really bizarre and, you know what, if you ask me, wonderful film. Well, I'm not saying it was bad or anything. I'm just saying the satire in that that you're, that you're mentioning. I mean, some of it is obvious, but some of it I I don't think it's... You know, the the way it's presented, you get to feel at first like this is kind of supposed to be a somewhat serious film, almost along the lines of Logan's run, because it's almost in that quality mm-hmm. and that design. Uh, you, you know, so now that you mention it, I'm picking it out. But especially in this club, uh, we are sitting in 2017 and we do still have the singles clubs today. And Don, we have a girl who meets up with our hero and she pulls out her her card and shows her last conquest hello are they are, are they foretelling social media there <laughs> i think maybe i yeah i, I think I, maybe i mean it, it was already a thought at that time mm-hmm. so and and people do like to brag about their conquests so it would make sense because i looked at that going holy crap okay you, you know i'm sitting there watching this going okay we, the car Yes, we actually kind of have cars like that now, uh, but everything else was a little over. I'm like, okay, no, not, not really 2017. And then she comes out and she goes, oh, yeah, uh, hey, how you doing? And then she shows this picture on a monitor screen. She has to scan her card, but it's pretty much a picture of her with some guy. Uh, <laughs> actually, I'd go, I'd go even farther, not just social media, online dating. Yeah, I'm thinking Tinder. I, I, oh. didn't think, I didn't think of it until you brought up that question. I'm thinking like Tinder. Yeah. Wow, you're right. Because and then you got the lawyer part in there as well, Glenn. You think this is foreshadowing that that they were kind of foreshadowing the the Tinder and and uh, you know what we have today? Did that did that scene feel a little bit like you know what we have today in a different form? But kind of, yeah. Um, I, I almost thought that uh, the first thing that popped in my head was when that one girl walks up and just shows a. Here's a video of me with some dude I screwed last week. <laughs> I'm like, so the future is kind of like chat roulette? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah, complete, you know, complete with the legal uh, agreement that you have. Where we get a cameo in here of Mr. Larry Fishburne. <laughs> I couldn't believe I was. I texted Don when I was watching this, and I'm like, "Holy crap, Larry Fishburne did this for for a brief stint, but playing the lawyer that's negotiating the contract between uh, one of the coworkers of our hero and a a potential mate for the evening, uh, which was an interesting conversation in itself, I must say. Uh, and and of course, Sam is still pining for his ha, girl." Ha. I, I just realized that in that scene, he's wearing the he's wearing the sunglasses oh, that are Matrix. reflecting his computer screen. Hey, Matrix! <laughs> oh, those were those were. Wow. Okay. What if I told you? <laughs> 
instead of having sex, oh my God. the blue pill. Or you imagine, what, imagine what you could learn in the Matrix. <laughs> wow. Oh. <laughs> Man, uh, I, now that you mentioned it, yeah, I thought those glasses looked familiar. And now it's awesome. Yep, there you go. <laughs> Now you know what he was doing before he was fighting the Matrix. He was a lawyer no negotiating kidding. sex contracts. <laughs> they never let me join in, so I took the blue pill and <laughs> said, screw this. <laughs> we, we do get kind of a creepy thing, though, with him and his perfect girl because uh, so she's not functioning, but Glenn, where where does our hero keep his perfect girl as he tries to figure out how to get her fixed or replaced. Bed? It is bed. Yeah. Yes. Well, well, I mean, it's not like she's going to rot. This is true. And, and everything that was her is on a little disc that he carries around on a little pocket recorder uh, or tape player, or disc player if you want. Uh, mini discs. So see, they foretold, they foretold <laughs> mini discs. That's all that. so there's another thing it was prophetic about. Uh, <laughs> Todd's size. But he learns that the only bottle that is like his Cherry 2000 is out in the zone. Which, uh, one thing that I wanted to, that, that I noticed quickly, yeah, no, uh, when he was at the repair shop and the repair guy was trying to talk him into a different model, did anybody else notice Gort in the background? Oh, and uh, Robbie the robot. Standing next to each other. Yeah. <laughs> We had Robbie the robot and Gort in there. Oh yeah, I forgot to mention. I'm glad you mentioned it. Yeah, when his his girlfriend breaks down, we basically have Scotty. We have the Mall of Women. Uh, his his tour of the women that are available. Uh, man, that scene was just a little creepy, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Why am I the one you go to? Because <laughs> you know. <laughs> I like seeing Gordon Robbie together, okay? <laughs> I was just going to say, Scott, yeah. you're, you're the one who lives in Florida. You're the guy we go to for freaky and weird. <laughs> okay, I can, I can see that. I'm, it's in it's my backyard. I get that, okay? Fair, fair, fair thing. But yeah, yes, definitely creepy. And I'm creeped as creeped out as that as I am about the weird sex trafficking nature of Florida. So. <laughs> So that 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 picking out the the girl model was a metaphor for Florida. Okay, yes, yeah. it's it's another world in the South that you have you just don't want to deal with. Trust me, Don. You agree that that was creepy as well, and just that oh, bad. Absolutely, and it definitely solidifies that the the writer of this story was strongly emphasizing the male fantasy going on. Mm-hmm. And the search see, for the ideal woman. And and see, that's where I was thinking of, you know, I'm glad Scott mentioned that from the commentary, because that's what I was thinking of when I saw, you know, it's supposed to be satire in that, but then you get the way that those scenes are handled or written, and we, we get those kind of peppered throughout that I, I didn't quite find the humor in it. I found it just bizarrely, Creepy. you know, unnerving. You know? I think it comes. Uh, I'm going to hold off on it, but I think that the humor in it comes later 
when you see yeah. the alternative to uh-huh. the mechanical robotic nature. I think that's where the humor comes in. Ah, okay. All right. Well, that's true. Yeah, it, it could come in later. It just, I guess for me, just that, you know, when you mentioned it, I'm like, there are a lot of seeds in here where I'm just like, uh... <laughs> This isn't. Yeah, this is, that this yeah. whole beginning part does not endear you very much to Treadwell. No, it it doesn't. You 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 don't really feel for this guy at all. I mean, plus the rest of the world they live in, and I know they're going for you know a stark contrast suddenly to the zone, which is basically the Wild West. Uh, <laughs> you you know, and in watching this, because I, I watched it a couple times over the last few days, taking notes, I even tried to consciously make the effort of, well, you know, we have the movies where we're trying to buy into robots and artificial intelligence, but they're not even trying for that. No. I mean, they're not exhibiting any, he talks about personality, but there's no personality there. Question. If you don't mind, uh, just just, I'm just po- and I'm posing this to Dawn, and I'm posing this to Glenn, and I'm posing this to everybody. Do you think? Because I mean, remember when this was made? It was made in the 1980s, and I'm not using that to excuse the behavior or anything like that. But do you think we are more conscious of the creepy, pervy nature of this behavior now in the internet, social media age than we would have been, say, like back then, where you you know you'd meet a guy. And it'd be about like the seventh or eighth date till you find out, whoa, what is he into? (laughs) (laughs) That's something that happened, you know, and now you can look up, you can see somebody's whole profile, you know, as we were talking about before with the Tinder and stuff like that and or just Internet dating or whatever. You can even if you're not even if you're doing that, you can like just do some research and like sign up. Let's find out if this guy's on Facebook and what he posts and what's his Twitter thing like. And. You know, do you think we're more conscious of that? It's not like creepy guys haven't existed forever. Right. Uh, And it's not like creepy guys aren't like the Sam Treadwell character where they seem just a little bit out of time, a little bit out of sorts. And you don't know, well, maybe they're just different and you don't find out till later that they're creepy. But do you think we're a little bit more conscious of it now? than we would have been, say, in 1988 or in 85 when this was filmed? I'm, I'm not sure on that. Uh, Glenn, what, do you think it's, it creeps us out a little more because it's, we're more uh, aware of that now and we're, we're older and wiser? Or, or do you think even older in the 80s? Huh? <laughs> older at least, yeah. Uh, um, maybe. I don't know. It's, I think it's just creepy in general. <laughs> Even for the 80s. How about you, Don? You know, I'm pretty sure. I'm I'm trying to remember what I thought of this movie back then um, when I saw it back, you know, when it came out. Um, And I'm pretty sure that I remember that whole beginning part being really creepy. Um. To an extent, yeah, more so. Um, but I think it was creepy for different reasons. Right. Yeah. I think it was creepy because the the thought of robots and, and AI was a lot more fantastical. And, mm-hmm. you know, people would look at it and be like, blow up dolls. 
Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's a different kind of creep factor than right. having a relationship with an actual AI. Well, well, I thought it was cre- I thought it was creepy too back then and and, yeah. and 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 now and stuff like that. I just wanted to know from other people like if it was we're we seem to be more conscious of it of that behavior mm-hmm. because and it, as far as kink goes, it's uh, all out there now. <laughs> kink, yeah, it's it's all out there and it's always been all out there. And like minds will find each other. Yeah, they will. And and. Here in 1985, they do predict the robot love bot, which we kind of do have nowadays, at least the real, the realistic looking ones. And, and some of them apparently in Japan do have movable parts. So, uh, but it, this film suddenly takes like a 180 degree turn and we get this awkward thing where they're trying to set up, you know, Sam and, and his love for his perfect, a woman who's a ro- robot, a, a love doll, and he goes out to the zone, which is basically the old west. Uh, <laughs> I mean, the I mean, old west fifties, nineteen fifties style. Yeah, I mean, uh, we're not even talking eighties. I, mean, I was thinking more like the bro west. <laughs> <laughs> the bro west. Well, yeah, because he's looking for a tracker because a tracker can take him into the zone for them to find where they store the Cherry 2000, which is an older model, and which uh, way later we come to find out, oh, yeah, it's in uh, uh, the Sahara Casino <laughs> for whatever whatever reason. <laughs> I don't even they all, get They all had hotels, didn't they? Yeah, well, yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> but uh so he finds her and he comes across our tracker uh melanie griffith uh, e johnson who he expects first when he heard his name is supposed to be a male and it is a, a female it is melanie griffith and glenn what did you think of the casting of melanie griffith as a tough tracker of the west well i mean she has one thing in common with a tough person from the eighties, that being Arnold Schwarzenegger, um, in that she cannot act. Oh my God, is she awful? <laughs> oh. <laughs> she really is not a good actress. <laughs> well, especially in this one, uh, you know, it's it just it it almost like she's just going through the paces in this. Don. It, it, what do you think of Melina Griffiths E. Johnson? Uh, where I where I agree with Glenn, I actually think that her lack of ability works in this one mm-hmm. because she's supposed to be uh, through dialogue. You kind of catch that she's supposed to be socially inept and not well, not not really good at interacting with people because she was raised in the zone by Uncle John. Yes. By Uncle John, six figures. Uh, mm-hmm. Six, six finger Jack. Jake. Uh, Jake. Jake, yes. Played by uh, Ben Johnson. And yeah, you, you do get that she is kind of socially awkward. Maybe not, she's not as educated as, as Sam Treadwell is. Uh, she's educated by, by the School of Hard Knocks. Um, it, it took me a while to warm up to the idea of her being the tough person i mean i think like the last you know later as it goes on she seems to get more comfortable in the role and i don't know how they filmed this but she seemed at least either the way it was written or directed she seems to get better 
with it. Scott, how'd you feel about E. Johnson? And w- would you say she, she actually, you buy into her toughness as the movie goes on versus when we're first introduced to her? Yes. Uh, I'm of two minds of this subject. Um, mm-hmm. I will uh, respectfully disagree with Glenn okay. uh, for a moment. <laughs> and I will actually ag- totally agree with De- Dawn's assessment here is that uh, it does seem to work for her that because here's the thing. Look through Melanie Griffith's filmography. Can you find another another part that is remotely like the part she plays in Cherry 2000? No. No. You didn't even have to think. No. <laughs> no. There was no edit there, folks. He didn't even have to check. <laughs> the um, but no, it's uh, it, it, there's nothing like it. And she open and apparently she has said, yeah, of the movies she's made, this is her least favorite. Though she doesn't like trash it, she acknowledges, no, no, there's fans and such. So it's cool that they like it, but eh, I didn't have it. Was, she acknowledged, seems to acknowledge, yeah, she's miscast. Mm-hmm. She's miscast. I mean, it's different than any other part she's played. She's not a bad actress. She's a great actress. In fact, if you watch uh, Mark and I, we were, Mark and I, we, we talked about uh, John Wayne when we talked about the shootist, and we mm-hmm. talked about how he was a good actor, but there was a difference between uh, being a good actor and having a uh, range. So, like, say, like when John Wayne got cast as Genghis Khan, it, <laughs> it didn't. It, it's it's yeah, exactly, uh-huh. exactly. It's hilarious. But if you look at John Wayne, the shootist, or the Searchers, or the Sands from Iwo Jima, it's great. Um. Melanie Griffith in Cherry 2000, it's goofy. Yeah. But if you look at her in, say, Working Girl or Something Wild, which is an amazing movie, or Stormy Monday, or Night Moves, or Body Double, those are all great performances. Um, here she's a bit miscast, and I will agree with Dawn. She, you see her right away, and you're like, ooh, this was just not the part for her. Yeah. It seems really strange. She's really off kilter. And but you know, as it moves on, as you were saying, Mark, I almost got to thinking, like, wow, it's kind of working and it shouldn't. <laughs> it's working for reasons that it, sh- it and it's working in a way that it shouldn't because she is miscast. But that's the thing is that you don't expect her to be right. as tough as she is. And she is. Right from the beginning, she's got a good head on her shoulders. She's got survival skills. She's got it all. And uh, if we could talk about the dichotomy between her and the uh, main character played by David Andrews in a bit, sure. that would be awesome. The Sam Treble sure. character. You want to do it now? Yeah, we can. We can talk about the difference what's between awesome them because that's really what's obvious. O- what is awesome about this is that right as soon as she enters, and he says, oh, you're a girl. I'm, no, I misjudge this i'm sorry and he goes off on this thing what happens he almost gets mugged and by, he, by byron james by, by brian james yeah the great late late great brian james who's great fantastic love seeing him in a bit part or may any part really um but then she comes back from that moment on he stops being the hero of the story <laughs> And everything shifts, and this was an intentional thing because E. Johnson, she is the character Melanie Griffith plays. E. Johnson is the more masculine of the two. Yeah, she's constantly showing uh, the Sam Treadwell character up, even though Sam Treadwell is this person who apparently was like fought in the war and whatever. He's such a creepy, weirdly 
milk toasty kind of guy. She's constantly. You know, yeah, sorry, I totally missed that. I, I yeah. totally missed that. Yeah, I, I was, was looking for it. Where does it ever indicate he fought in a war? He mentions it, one they, line. They mentioned like one or two lines. I fought in the border wars. Border we don't war. know what the hell the border wars were, but <laughs> it gives him an excuse so that when he like picks up a machine gun, he doesn't like you know it doesn't like recoil in his hand and fly in his face. You know, basically he can shoot and stuff. But it's like even though he was a soldier and stuff, so she's constantly showing him up, and eventually, throughout the film, there's this arc. And it becomes this thing where E. Johnson's the character. He's the guy who's like falling two steps behind. And, but eventually towards the end, he comes, catches up. And it's this th thing that allows the Sam Treadwell character to regain his own humanity, his sense of assertiveness, and a sense of masculinity, which includes him becoming a feminist. Because he doesn't want the uh, programmed, pre-programmed thing. He wants the unpredictable. He wants somebody who can think for himself. He wants somebody who can show him up when he's being an ass, as he has been for the first 45 minutes of the film. <laughs> <laughs> I when I saw that move, saw this last time, I'm like, holy cow! <laughs> That's a, it's a much more progressive character arc then you, especially in regarding gender issues, than I would have expected from a film of this era. Yeah, well, it does. It does change the minute she pulls out the car, and her car, and that is bigger than him. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Again, there's lots of imagery. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and they run the barricade and everything, and he's afraid of the barricade. You're right. He 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 does kind of change. They do change the kind of the roles of it here of what we would normally see in a, in a movie like this in the action movie in that she's she's the one with the balls and he he's the one like yeah maybe we shouldn't do that um, but you know it, I guess it got me though at first because of the way they introduce it because he's perving on her when he's in her office for crying out loud I'm like, <laughs> like do do we need the shot of the silhouette of her taking her shirt off and and the I'm like yeah, come on guys but. Uh, but, but besides her perv him perving on her, yeah, they, I guess it, they do kind of switch, and he does take the the submissive role in a sense. And, and you do kind of need that to emphasize the fact that for him, in his mind and in his experience, even though he once was a soldier, um, in his mind right now, women are his sex spot. Mm -hmm. It's all about service to him. So how can she benefit him? Her only benefit before she knows anything about, before he knows anything about her, is her body and how it may be appealing to him. Yes, it, it may be, but he's still got his his at this point in the movie when they're just running the barricades and first getting into the zone. He's still got his his love on for his bot to the yes. point where he he's playing the love making on his little tape recorder. While he's having lunch, Glenn, is that what you do on lunch too? Is you just you play the, <laughs> the you know the the love dialogue that you have during lunch just so you can listen to it? No, man, that's creepy. It was, isn't it? That's I, mean, creepy. I just sexed. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, even if we get into an hour into this film, just as as he's getting into the zone and we get to meet the the outlaws out there, uh, 
for me, Sam is still creepy and I'm not behind him. Are, are you at all, Glenn? Is this guy right now, you know, even that first aid is, are, are we connected at all? Do we want to see him accomplish his goal at all at this point? Um, not really. No, <laughs> no, not at all. I mean, he's just kind of a, I don't know. <laughs> he is. He, he's, I, I found it odd that this is the guy we're introduced and he's the one that's moving, you know, helping move along their mission. And up until like an hour to this film, I, I'm like, I don't care. I want this guy to, you know, <laughs> I want him to get stopped. I don't want him ever to get to the, the warehouse of sex bots. <laughs> um, and I don't know if that's what we're supposed to feel with him. You know, like Scott said, the roles do change, and he's no longer quite the hero once we meet Melanie Griffith's character. Uh, and then, and actually, he's further removed from the equation when we finally meet Six Fingered Jake after they they uh, do the harrowing stunt, which actually is a very impressive stunt for a film of this nature. Of oh wow, a stunt person standing on a car on a hook. Uh, which didn't look like they really had any wires at all. And there was some, some of it was a stunt person mm-hmm. uh, and uh, uh, named uh, Tracy Keene. And some of the, and some of it was actually Melody Griffith. Was it really? <laughs> some of it, not some of it. And, not... And, 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 and they, and no one can tell which is which they just know that, okay, when the car is over, actually over the water that is definitely tracy Keene. <laughs> but everything else they're like i know that i some of this is melanie griffith she got up on the hood of the car apparently right out of frame they had like a ledge where if she oh. fell she would have just injured herself instead of like falling to her death <laughs> but no some of that was actually that was an amazing sequence <laughs> the, the sequence with the with the crane and lifting the car up in the air and, and them shooting guys though i loved how she kept pulling out the bigger gun Don, <laughs> did you get she pretty much takes out a small mountain uh, what'd you think of this with the crane and, and uh, I, I noticed that that was actually in my notes that as, as she's pulling out this big cannon shoulder cannon and you've got like 12 guys holding bazookas and they're shooting at each other and all the people on all the five guys with the bazookas can hit is this like you said the small mountain that's underneath her mm-hmm. and, that was just crazy and then she levels the mountain with her weapon yeah. <laughs> I'm like sitting there going, "Oh my god!" <laughs> like that, those are some hell of the weapons there. Uh, well, he's got his own his little gun that he's shooting guys with, but pew 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 as she's launching. And there's no symbolism here at all with guys and <laughs> huge RPGs and shooting at her. And well, it does hit the car occasionally because it is an armored car, apparently because it. it there are some sparks in that, but uh, so I had to mention that sequence. But uh, with Sam Treadwell, he almost gets further removed as far as being the man or whatever. When we get hook up with Six Fingered Jake, because now he's not even just the only guy in her life. He's, you know, he's pretty much a tag along at this point, even though the mission is supposed to be for his sex bot. Uh, you know, Scott, wouldn't you say that that he's further 
reduced a bit once we get uh, Six Finger Jake in the equation? Uh, he is not as as so so much as like a potential romantic lead because uh, Six no. Finger Jake is more of a parental figure or the uncle figure. We eventually find out through dialogue. Uh, but uh, Ben Johnson, who does a great job here, excellent actor. Um, he uh, he he kind of embodies like what would happen if like this person did not get wussified by a culture of convenience right you know <laughs> about like uh, what if what if some you really did have to survive all this thing and you get that it wasn't such an easy ride i mean the mm -hmm. six finger jake character when we meet him the belief is that he's dead and that right. was the only way he could retire right was to let people know he was dead well you know that doesn't happen unless it's it's been a pretty hard life, and yeah. um, and so he uh, but he's learned to survive. He's learned to live on the land. And is there a more contented character in this movie than this guy? Um, he's happy with his life. He's he is. Yes, he he's not perfect with it. I mean, he has this wonderful bit uh, later on in the film, and you you know you know almost immediately, guys. The show is called The Spoiler Room, once again. So, you know, if you don't want to know, like, just... Oh, you're talking, you're talking about the dialogue later on by uh, the, the dialogue, Oasis? The dialogue by the Oasis. There's this wonderful monologue, which is kind of a bit reminiscent from a scene Johnson had in The Last Picture Show. Mm -hmm. um, I was thinking about that when I first saw it, and then uh, when I was listening later on, they said, oh, yeah, totally. That was what it was supposed to be. He's like, okay, good to know. <laughs> But yeah, he's uh, and he's talking about you know his how he has looked at life, and he says some some days I think I've got it all figured out, and other days I have no idea. Mm -hmm. And he talks about like what his view is of mortality. You know, this guy's not going to make it. Well, no, when he starts, <laughs> like, he right starts from the, well, right, I think right from the beginning when you meet him, like ooh. He ain't gonna make it to end credits, <laughs> uh, but um, <laughs> the uh, but you know he starts doing this thing and he's got this philosophy. He doesn't have all the answers, mm -hmm. but is there more a, a more contented, knowledgeable character in this entire film? Because everybody is misguided in some way, right? Except for him, he's the only one who has the answers and part of those answers are i don't have the answers he's a it's a wonderful character and um so he does yeah i'm sorry to go back to your original oh, question is that sam does is a bit removed mm -hmm. but like not in the sense of like romantic lead but as far as like a male lead as far as you know this is the uh awareness right that you could have but that you have kind of sh uh sheltered yourself from uh you've you've lived your life too sheltered you've lived your life having everything you want with you and you still don't feel complete you still like a robot breaks down and you don't know what to do mm -hmm. um well, so it's so it kind of like all is it a full circle of like you know this is what you need to know this is the humanity this is what being a person is well he doesn't even he doesn't even really hit that point yet because uh, we have Melanie Griffith when they sleep overnight, which I thought was just an odd scene I had in the notes. You know, she decides to sleep naked. Um, okay. 
Uh, She's kind of open with her body, though. I think the, like the whole thing, even even back at the when they first meet, I don't think it was like a seduction thing or anything. No, I think no. Just, you know, it's a matter of fact thing out there. Right. I think that. I think that she's also the kind of a character where if anybody tried something that she wasn't welcoming, you know, they'd get they'd yeah. they'd get they'd get a bullet, you know, between between the legs, you know. So <laughs> yeah, I, I, that's I, true. I don't I, I don't but, think so. I think she's just like that's just like part of like who she is as a person. And and our Sam Treadwell, he's still not the man yet because he's still hanging on to the girl because he still has the recording so much so he puts it in the donkey. <laughs> okay, not like that. He puts it on a bag. <laughs> On the side of a donkey for safekeeping to when that's when we're finally introduced to Tim Thomerson's Lester. I love Tim Thomerson. <laughs> What'd you think of our happy villain, Lester? I, he made the movie for me, seriously. Um, I will watch movies just because Tim Thomerson is in it. I love his sense of humor. I love his comedic style. Um, he's He's got this kind of, especially in this one, this kind of, oh, and he does this often. Uh, it's that kind of over-the-top hippie, violent hippie, love child, uh, back-to-nature kind of thing that's, not quite believable, but entertaining as all hell. Yes. He, he is definitely entertaining, I thought. So, uh, Glenn, how about you with the Lester character? How did you feel about this villain compared to, I mean, the characters we've met up until now, uh, the, the happy villain? Oh, everyone else is, you know, nothing. <laughs> this is what I was waiting for. I was waiting for Tim Thomerson. I mean, that's mm-hmm. all you need in a B-movie is Tim Thomerson. You don't need anything yes. else. You really don't. If you have him, you're set. Well, because he makes the most of this role, this this where he has his sky ranch and all his lovely ladies, and he he's kind of the ruler of the zone, if you will, the bad guy. But he kills people with a smile on his face, <laughs> which I thought was an interesting villain. I'm like this guy. I, I like. I mean, Tim Thomerson's charismatic anyway, uh, but yeah, he's. He's all you need. He, I, I think he's probably the best character in all honesty in this film. Uh, the way the way they wrote him in, in such a way he's performed. Scott, what about you with Lester? What Glenn said, I mean, and and Dawn said, I love uh, Tim Thomerson. You know, I loved him ever since I saw him in Metal Storm. I love him in, um, <clears throat> of course, the transfer movies. Love him and seeing him in any of these movies. This is that period that was kind of uh, in between the Charles Band features, you know. Mm-hmm. There was like a five-year gap in between when he did, say, like, Trancers and Trancers 2 and then Dollman and all that other stuff. And he'd show up in movies like this, The Harvest, and um, he's so good in this movie. And what's really interesting about this part more than his other thing is that he's so good at playing, like, the hard-boiled you know, anti-hero type thing. Well, here, not only is he cast as a villain, which is against type, um, he all, Rebecca, you gotta remember, Tim Thomerson also got his start in stand-up comedy. He's right. a co- he's, he wasn't supposed to be a hard-boiled guy. He was a comedic guy. And here, so here you see kind of this mixture of the hard-boiledness, him playing against type as a villain, and this comedic bit because... 
His le- I mean, what kind of name for a villain is Lester? Well, it's a pretty good name if you are a self-help guru who has started a cult in the desert, who, which is what Lester is. He's kind of like this mixture of, um, of uh, Tony Robbins and uh, uh, Jubal Harshaw from the Robert Heinlein novels. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, a bit Charles of also Manson. a little bit of Charles Manson. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I mean, this is great. I mean, you got this guy, so he's got, got all this wicked streak, and he's, he's always got a smile on his face, and he's always energetic, and he's always peppy, but he's psychotic. And if you look at it, he is just as uh, bent as the Sam Treadwell character because what does he want? He wants the exact same thing. He's been tracking Sam ever since he – Sam checked into the hotel because Robert, his henchman, Robert Zadar, overhears, <laughs> overhears him say, you got any cherries at the Hodge thing? He's like, oh, why would he want one of them? And this guy's looking for a Cherry 2000. Uh, Robert Zadar, of course, in this one, the only part you're ever going to look at him and not be immediately drawn to his facial features because the outfit he's wearing is just <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> I was just like, what the hell, Rob? <laughs> I had that in the notes the first time we see him. He's more in the background, and he's got a tool belt and, like, cut-off baby shorts <laughs> or something. Just, it was like, amazing. It's the, it's the only time, because Robert Zadar had this uh, very unique face, you know, thanks to this, like, uh, I guess it was like a disease or some kind of defect yeah, or something that he had. Yeah. Um, and so he had this very notable face, you know, and it's the only film I've seen him in. And I've seen like dozens where like it took me a second to realize it was Robert Zadar. Usually you'd know right away. Why? Fashion sense. Holy cow. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, going back to, uh, yeah, Tim Thompson, he's like this psychotic guy and he's just like really peppy and everything. But he's got this new age self-help guru thing mixed with like this psychosis. I mean, if you're taking the movie completely seriously, I think that all goes into the crapper. The moment you see all the bad guys start doing the hokey pokey. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, because Sam gets kidnapped. Not only is he introduced to Lester in the Sky Ranch, but out of the blue, suddenly we get. Oh, hey, it's his ex-girlfriend who's now with Lester, who's now going by the name of Ginger. Same who, girl from the opening scene with the demo reel. Yeah, with the demo reel. Uh, Which is a know, plot hole, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> it, is a bit, it is a bit. You're just like, um, okay. <laughs> yeah, it's a big plot hole. <laughs> and, wow, you made it out in the wasteland. and She was, she was a cool character. She was an interesting character, though, because... Uh, you know, I, I like how she played. She was actually playing Lester a bit. You know, here Lester thinks he's the whole leader, and she, she's just playing the game for survival, and she, she's comfortable at, at the Sky Ranch, apparently. I just thought it was kind of out of the blue that suddenly, you know, out of, out of all the wastelands in all the world, she had to be at this one. <laughs> you know... I I kind of, especially towards the end of the film, I got more the impression that as as we watch uh, Ginger and, and Lester's relationship, 
I was getting more of a sense of questioning who actually was in charge there, Ginger or Lester. That, that's what I'm saying. It makes you wonder if she's actually pulling the strings a bit while she was there or working her way to being the puppet master of Lester, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because she kind of directs it because she keeps him happy. And that, and, and by keeping him happy, I think she, she is playing him a bit. Uh, yeah, that's a good point. Glenn, what about you? You think Ginger is actually running the show by using Lester as her puppet? I don't know if she's so much running the show, but I mean, I think she can do what she wants. Mm-hmm. And she can manipulate Lester a bit, but I don't think she's that interested in it. She just, you know, is just being her, which is a little flaky. <laughs> Um, well, then no sandwiches for Lester. Yes, no sandwiches for Lester. Um, <laughs> but yeah, just uh, she's just enjoying the new her. Mm-hmm. Kind of reinventing herself uh, by going out and hanging with this crazy cult guy who's also looking for the cherry bot. Um, oh, uh, one thing I wanted to mention before we moved on. Um, sure. Did you guys catch... Uh, with Lester's obsession for the uh, Cherry 2000, or with his interest in the Cherry 2000, we get, he gives a different, he gives, he does this toss-off line where he talks about, you know, Sam has always been talking about the Cherry 2000 as having personality and being tender and having a relationship. And uh, Lester says something about, uh, her being an octopus. Yeah. So ravenous in the sack. <laughs> what, Glenn? <laughs> yeah, it's like smash you, she'll smash you like an octopus or like being yeah. smashed by an octopus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's more on the whole physical thing and and Sam's more on the emotion side of it. Uh, and he has the coveted disc that apparently are rare that'll actually activate her which is partly uh, why he's uh, Lester's trying to warm up to him to see if he has the disc. Though uh, he does escape and they head to the Oasis, like I said, where Harry Carey stars as, uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, Slappy. Slappy. Uh, Snappy. That's what it is. Snappy, Snappy. Tom, Snappy oh. Tom, who runs the brothel and <laughs> last dash. I'm naming my first kid Slappy. So. Slappy. <laughs> the last chance brothel and gas station. Uh, because, hey, it's the wasteland with his, his one woman who I guess would be the brothel uh, part of the gas station. And, uh, of course, don't things judge. go... Huh? Wink, don't, wink, don't, don't judge so quickly. Sorry. Sorry, you're <laughs> right. It could be... He could be the brothel part. That's true. You're right. It is the wasteland. They, they do call him Snappy. They do call him Snappy. <laughs> They do call him Slappy. Uh, <laughs> or Slappy. <laughs> or Slappy. But our, our guy escapes, or he starts to escape the Sky Ranch, and, and our trackers, Melanie and Six-Finger Guy, had him. And just before he gets to the Oasis, though, I got to say, um, Don, Sam Treadwell, we're looking at, uh, played by Mr. One, David Andrews. And he is confronted by one Mr. <laughs> Robert Zadar. <laughs> How how do they try to sell this as a legitimate fight? (laughs) Oh, they're not. I mean, oh, my God. He takes him out, and I'm like, 
No, really? it it's, it's all that military training he had, even though he had no clue about geography or where the borders were. Right. Uh, all, all that military, tra- military training he had, flying a tiny little uh, single-engine plane, apparently. Yes. Mm-hmm. He's got he that. Okay. He knocks him out. No, he doesn't. How he does doesn't he knock him out. No, he, he punches him and he thinks, hey, I did it. And then he finds out that, no, what really got him was that uh, Melanie Griffith came up behind him and stabbed him in the back. Oh, see, I never got that. <laughs> look at that. Yeah, look at it again. <laughs> it was another one of those emasculating moments for Sam Treadwell. But it like, wasn't that like, obvious because when I watched it, it, he hits him, gut punches him, hits him in the head, and he falls down. And Melanie doesn't appear right away. So looking at it, it looked like he knocked him out. And then all of a sudden she it, it does, and later on, then she shows up and takes the knife out of his back. You realize, oh, see, she, threw, I she thought I, she threw a knife at his back. <laughs> I didn't notice the the knife being pulled out of his back. And yeah. Maybe that was either off screen, or maybe it was the version, uh, the the way it was the version I have was cut. Maybe. Well, they they made it look they made it look they 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 really covered it up until you see her show up and mm-hmm. she's like fiddling with the body. And what she's doing is she's taking out a knife. Oh, see, uh, I, because because you know it's PG thirteen. <laughs> I never got that. If, if yeah. I, am I missing that, Don? Did you get the impression I that out, Robert Zadar? Yeah, I'm I'm pretty sure Scott's right. Wow, I'm pretty I don't sure know Scott's how, right. I don't know how I missed it because I know it was a surprise. That she I, I was mocking up, the but... military training because you know I missed that part. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I missed the whole two lines. Yes. So that's why I was mocking the military training. <laughs> well, the character deserves to be mocked anyway. Uh, <laughs> so we have the Oasis, and we, we, we finally fly, and we go to Vegas, which when I saw Vegas, I'm going to say right now, and, and I know you've, I, I think you've all seen the movies I'm going to reference, but when I saw the plane land in Vegas, I suddenly wanted a Cherry 2000, Damnation Alley, yes! Resident Evil Extinction crossover. Yes! Because I'm, I'm like, what is it about Vegas getting buried in sand during the apocalypse? Outrunning crows and killer cockroaches. <laughs> oh, <laughs> The minute I saw that scene, Glenn, the minute you see this, what is it with Vegas getting buried in sand? I mean, we, here we have Vegas once again during the apocalypse. Apparently, when people don't live in Vegas, it gets buried. I mean, yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's what half the city, half the population of Vegas does. They're always on shoveling duty all the time. <laughs> constantly be shoveling that city out from the sand. <laughs> I was fully expecting, you know, uh, George Papard to come around the corner in, in, in the track, you know, the six wheeler or whatever, and and you know, you have me and Jeff. I just pictured this whole amalgamation scene because the Vegas looked exactly the same in those three movies, just up to its, you know, armpits in sand. And I'm the, like, the thing I always love about every every time you see. Uh, apocalypse post apocalyptic Vegas. It's not only buried in sand. If you've ever seen shots, like actual shots from like outside the city, there's a huge. You can see the mountains from Vegas. Mm-hmm. Like, like I mean, you can really see them. But there's never mountains. Anytime you see a post apocalyptic Vegas in the distance, there are never mountains. It's always just sand, which means I guess in once the apocalypse happens, the Rocky Mountains are just turned into sand, which is why <laughs> it's constantly buried. 
Well, that would make sense because if you've ever seen the desert around Vegas, there's ton. It's it's not sand. No, it's plants. It's plants. It's a living desert. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it, and Don, why would the bots be stored in a casino? Is it for? Would they be in there because of the love? Because they crashed. Sin City, baby. Sin City. That's. It's Sin City. So the, these bots were probably stored there for the casino people before whatever apocalypse happened, which they never really explain what what happened. Um, no. And not really radiation because we don't have any mutants. Um, no. Which, which is a little disappointing. I was hoping for some mutants. Apparently the ozone layer is burned off because Ginger was wearing that Uber suit, which she took off and never put back on. Right. I don't know why she showed up in like this beekeeper outfit. Because uh, <laughs> they, they had beehives. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's right. Oh, yes, that's right. She did have, right. they did have beehives. See, but I didn't see that was a beekeeper outfit. I thought that was uh, like a nuclear radiation fallout. kind of uh, trying to protect from the it was the, UV rays. It was the futuristic 2017 beekeeper outfit. <laughs> That makes much more sense than yeah. what I thought. Yeah, because there were bees, because that was used in their escape. So you know, yes, so. which mm-hmm. for some reason he felt, you know, it's like I gotta blow up their cars. Oh yeah, and take out their beehives. Because <laughs> <laughs> he just knew that Lester would be by at that time to get stung by the bees. He he just yeah. he had that type of training from the military in the border wars, apparently. <laughs> 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 Strategy. Strategy. <laughs> amazing what one little line of dialogue can do. But yes, we're getting in late here and we're finding more things to talk about than I thought we would with this film. Uh, but we'll wrap up here. We're getting to the final, final cla- climactic battle and he finally gets his bot. He puts the disc in her. She wakes up. Uh, you know, he, he's kind of grown attached to his tracker, Melanie Griffith, but he doesn't quite want to ad- admit to it because otherwise it would have made their whole travel be worthless. So then he gets what he wants, and he, she basically, the tracker sacrifices herself because there's too much weight in the plane, and he comes around, and he sees the light, and he leaves the perfect woman for the imperfect woman. Don, what? <laughs> Is that- you know, I, I, I get that. I mean, that was where it was going. We all knew that. What, what I'm laughing about is uh, at that end, at that end scene when uh, they're flying off into whatever, and uh, he turns around and kisses her when he's supposed to be flying. Yeah. I made the comment during that scene. Uh, I said, "Wow, he's brave because he's already proven that he can't drive." Uh, when he. <laughs> Ran into the side of a mountain, staring at Melanie Griffith sleep in a in her car. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So driving, looking at Mel, kissing Melanie Griffith while he's flying, they're just going to fly into the side of a mountain. Well, no, there were die. no mountains. There were. We've established the mountains were gone, so he was okay. There was nothing. There. <laughs> Fair enough. The mountains were turned to sand to cover Vegas. That's right. Yes, remember? Uh, And he took out Lester, too, because Lester gets the bright idea that he can stop a plane with lassoing the wheel. Yes, death by dancing girl. Death. (laughs) 
girl, where he runs into the dancing girl stage. Uh, Scott, what'd you think of this final sequence here? I mean, we knew where it was headed, but uh, suddenly it just it gets into the full-on action. It's like what you were kind of waiting for, I think, for the whole film, wasn't it? What do you want to know about? Do you want to know about the last action scene? Do you want to know about how Lester gets taken how, how, out or what? How, how'd you feel of just how it played out? Was it how you expected? Uh, no, and I loved it uh, because, um, and this comment was made again with a thing, but I mean, like, I love that, for instance, when they revive Cherry and she's like this program thing, she's acting like this and she's so goofy. And I, when I was watching this, like, yeah, she's so goofy. And again, Ah, I hate bringing this, but when I w- listened to this commentary, they brought up something interesting, and I'm like, holy shit! And I had to go back and watch it without that sequence, without, again, mm-hmm. without any commentary, just to see if I saw it. And I did. It says, if you really look at it, the Cherry character is only acting as women are encouraged to act in the action sequences of virtually any movie. No matter how they have behaved earlier on, even if this was an established character who had like you know some independence, once the guy is there, they're encouraged to kind of like take this subservient, um, oblivious role, which is what Cherry does, you know. But Sam Treadwell's there, but even better, E. Johnson is there, who is as we've established, like way more than both of them you know, put together. <laughs> I loved that bit. I thought that was brilliant. Like, holy cow, they're absolutely right. I didn't even catch that before. And uh, I love the way that Tim Thomerson goes out because it's like the only way he could go out. He goes out, uh, a, he goes out killed by his own obsession. He goes out killed by the giant plastic woman. And the Sam character, who has, of course, said, like, you know what? I don't need the plastic woman. I want the real woman. I want the one who's going to challenge me. He's the one who gets up and gets to fly into the sunset. And they get to, and not only he gets to fly into the sunset, they get to fly into the sunset together. It's this weird kind of juxtaposition where it's actually kind of saying something and tilting classic Hollywood motifs on its head. And yet it feels like the classic romantic thing. I mean, you you half expect that instead of credits rolling up, you expect it to say, the end, made in Hollywood, USA, or something. (laughs) You expect it to be this very traditional thing. You got the Basil Paladuras score that's just like fantastic, traditional going up and really swelling at the end. And you expect that to be the thing. So it's this weird juxtaposition of two worlds. I thought that it, it ended on a perfect note because mm-hmm. in ways it was ended the only way it could have. And in other ways, it completely surprised me. And I'm not sure if irony is the right word, um, but I'm going to use it anyway. Um, the ironic thing is that had a Lester not done that last hurrah and gotten himself killed, he would have ended up with Cherry. Oh, yeah. Oh yeah, he. I he, thought that's where it was going. <laughs> yeah, I, I thought so too. Uh, that's that's where it was headed. Glenn, how would you feel about this final sequence? Did it play out like you you thought it would? And uh, was it was it satisfying for the ending? Uh, how would you feel about this kind of end sequence and how things played out? I, it, it went about as I expected. Um, <laughs> although I love the fact that you know it's it's Lester shot how many times? Like three or four at least, at and he, least. all all like and all like body wounds, like chest and stomach. 
and then falls, you know, back through that window, which he then climbs out of. And then what kills him? Oh, yeah. He just gets smacked into a... <laughs> that, that kills him. <laughs> that, that's, the final, that's the final straw. Yeah, it must have pushed the bullets in further. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I, I, I love I love Glenn. He like hit, he always finds that way to hit the nail on the head. <laughs> yes. Although we get at the very end the idea that Ginger may take over the cult because well, she's sitting there with you know, what's left of it. What's yeah, what's left of it? He pretty much killed everybody, but she gets she gets the cherry. Yeah. She, she, she gets, gets the cherry. She gets the cherry, which uh, I, I actually liked that ending. I thought that was kind of a cute ending, in all honesty, was giving Cherry the, the sandwich, and she's just like, huh, okay. Well. Pretty. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I think we're going to wrap it up here for the evening. Uh, folks, Cherry 2000 is definitely different than the other two films I think we watched uh, that take place in 2017 in, in many different ways, but uh, there were a little similarities to where we're at now, but definitely a lot of differences. But this is a unique film, uh, to say the least, and hope we wet your whistle for that. So let's go down the line and, and just get your final thought with, with Cherry 2000. And like we did with the others, would you recommend it to a, a sci-fi fan today? Uh, Glenn, we're going to start with you first. Uh, just your final thought with this film, you know, how you felt overall, and then uh, would you recommend it? Um, if you're a fan of, of B-movie post-apocalyptic stuff, yeah, check it out. Uh, if for nothing else, for, for Tim Thomerson's Lester. Um, otherwise, I mean, it's not... It's, I don't think it's a great movie. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's got its moments, which makes it fun for someone like me who likes this you know, type of film. But I think for your general audience, it's going to be like, really? That's what... I mean, no. But I mean, I'm assuming if someone's listening to this show, then yes. <laughs> or, or cut, you know, you have the same, uh, you know, cut of the same jib or whatever of of, of us. So go for it, um, and enjoy the parts that are enjoyable, um, and just truck off the rest because it's yeah. it was in the eighties. <laughs> and, and see and play, see who you can recognize that shows up in this film. Uh, <laughs> Don, how about you? Your your final thoughts with Cherry Two Thousand? Would you recommend it? Um, to again, to fans of the post-apocalypse genre, I would. Um, uh, probably even to fans of cheesy '80s B grades, um, just because that's a thing too. Um, I enjoyed it back when I first saw it. I found it entertaining again with this revisit for different reasons. But I still found it entertaining, so yeah. Cool. I would and, recommend it. And Scotty D? Uh, well, you know, I've already said it already, but, you know, uh, just to reiterate, you know, I thank uh, Dawn for suggesting we do this episode uh, because it allowed me to visit, revisit this film that I didn't think much of when I was, like, 13 years old or whatever. And... Now looking at this movie, I loved this movie. <laughs> this is amazing. So uh, yeah, I think this is a really great movie. It's whatever you are expecting. It's not that. 
it's got kind of that same quirky edge to certain films of the 80s, like, say, like, 80s and early 90s, like, say, like, uh, if you ever saw, like, Highway to Hell, I'd say that it has, like, kind of the same sense of humor about that. Uh, but it is it is a film that combines some of the things that were going on in the 80s with some a really interesting way of, of uh, satirizing the world as it was back then and kind of providing a really interesting character arc for a lot of the people. I really got a lot out of Cherry 2000, so I would recommend it, which is not to, to promise that you're going to like it. But I would def- <laughs> it's not for everybody, but I would definitely suggest everybody check it out, definitely. And I would say it is for select tastes. Uh, yeah, cheesy, a post-apocalyptic film fans, if you're as mentioned before, if you're listening to this, you at least have some interest in it. Check it out. Uh, we didn't cover everything uh, because uh, we want to leave at least a little bit for you to be surprised about. But uh, yeah, I would recommend it. Modern sci-fi fans, it all depends if they're looking for the nostalgia part. If they're like the little 80s cheesy stuff, you'll see a lot of things in here. There is a lot of satire. If you're from the 80s, you'll probably appreciate it more because of the references and such. Uh, but it, it is a, it is highly different from The Fortress and The Running Man. <laughs> let's, let's put it that way, both tone and, and presentation, I think. So, so there you have it, folks, our, our thoughts on Cherry 2000. We hope you enjoyed this discussion. And then real quick here, we're going to have everybody pimp themselves. So, uh, Don, why don't you go first? And let us know where they can find you at. Uh, you can find me at intheaudience.net. Fantastic. And Glenn? Um, <laughs> you can find me at uh, YouTube, Guy in a Bunker Productions, Guy in a Bunker.com, or follow me on Twitter at Guy in a Bunker. Fantastic. And Scotty D? You can catch me at moviocrity.com. And holy cow, I actually have new content there. After eight months of promising, I do have it. So, And more is on its way. Moviocrity.com. You can also catch my web series, Moviocrity, at vimeo.com slash channel slash Moviocrity. Fantastic. And you find links to all these fine folks as well as archive to the Spoiler Room podcast and my other things that I do at SpecialMarkProductions.com as well as on We Live Entertainment. I actually wrote some words about some films there uh, that showed at Sundance. So if you're at all curious about that stuff, you can check it out there. But definitely check out the works of these fine folks who have sat down tonight and talked Cherry 2000 with me. Hope you enjoyed this journey. And now say goodnight, everyone. Good night, everyone.